0: was having lunch with the family this afternoon, and as we got to wrapping up, I posed a question to everybody, because it's the question that I pose in this lesson that's been on my mind for some time, and it's pretty simple. It's just, do important people do important stuff? And that question came from a place of thinking about our identities in the kingdom of God and the role that we have been given in the kingdom and the charges that we have been given, the tasks that God has given us to carry out in the world and how important they are. Now, I didn't ask that question to make us think that we're so important and so self-aggrandizing and that we're so special that people should look at us and say, wow, you know, they should be on Time Magazine's cover if that's even still a thing. That's not the point, but the point is the important job that we have been given in the kingdom of God. And a person that comes to mind as I reflect on that concept is a man named J. Robert Oppenheimer. You might have heard of him, and now I'm not toting him as a a paragon of, of morality and virtue, But he was a man in the 1940s that the U.S. government called upon for a very specific task to assemble a team of people to build an atomic bomb before the Nazis could to end World War II. Now, I'm not making any kind of claims about the morality of any of that situation, but the point I'm making is that no one could mistake that because of the task that he was called to do that he did not take his job seriously. He took it very seriously. He worked day and night to the end that he was called forth to do. And I've been thinking about that concept of the important job that we have been given and how our life reflects the importance of the job that we have been given. And I think about a couple of passages that were brought forth uh, recently here in a meeting that I recently went to where a man had been speaking on the concept of a higher view of the kingdom of God. And these were the two verses that he brought forward. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 Says, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. But you are a chosen generation, sorry, First Peter 2 and 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. The church, you and I, is the pillar and the ground of truth. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people, God's own special people. There's no getting around it. We are a part of something very important. We are a part of something that is of more importance than anything mankind could ever dream of. And while we are not important in the way that the world would look at an important person in, in terms of somebody to, to aggrandize and idolize, the mindset of First Peter 2 and 9 is one that says, look at how important the word of God is, or excuse me, the work of God is, and I have been called to be a part of that important work. All of this speaks to an idea that I would call a higher view. Very simply put, if you want to know what a higher view means when we're going to be looking at the things later on throughout the course of this lesson, is that is rejecting trivial approaches to weighty, weighty matters of Christian identity. I almost said weightier matters of Christian identity as opposed to, you know, there's pretty much nothing that's not weighty in our Christian identity. First off, I want to consider a higher view of our studies. And I purposely chose that. I began typing this out, and initially I typed the phrase our study life, and I immediately had to backspace that because I didn't really believe what I just typed. Our study life, there's no such thing as our study life or our prayer life. It's all a part of our life as Christians. It's all part of our identity as a Christian, so I don't want to separate the two of them. But a higher view of our studies. One thing that's made me think of our studies in a in light of being higher and having a higher view of our studies, is the fact that God's Word is powerful. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, that phrase, God's Word is powerful, can become very trivial if we let it. It's certainly become that way to me. I hear that and I know it. I know that it's powerful and I often let it go in one ear and out the other because I understand that. But do I truly grasp what that means to have a higher view of my studies in the Word of God? You know, we were recently a part of a study with some of the young men in the congregation. We were at Callan's house and we were studying some very, very deep things regarding the Word of God and regarding raising a family in the world today. And this was the way that I viewed it in the moment, and this may be dramatizing it too much, but it's just the way that caused me to look at it in a much higher light. We might as well have been in a war room that was preparing for nuclear war because of how grave the subject matter was. When we were looking at things that would influence our family and influence our children in the, in the years to come, you can't help but approach those things in a higher view. You can't but help have a higher view of those things that you're studying kind of like a group of people that might be gathered together in a war room preparing for you know, a nuclear war or for a major conflict, they would take that very seriously in that moment. They would look at the impending conflict and they would be very serious about every action that they would take, everything that they would study and everything that they would consider in light of what was coming. And this higher view of our studies in the Word of God, we need to have that in mind. Another thing that's brought a higher view of my studies is the shame of not knowing. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, not to get into the business of comparing ourselves amongst ourselves and all of that and looking at someone who's better at knowing a certain thing about the word of God than somebody else, but you ever been in a situation where maybe you were talking to a younger Christian in the faith and they knew something about a certain passage or about a certain story, and you sort of just had to fake your way through it like you knew a lot about it too. Kind of like in a situation where maybe people are talking about a movie and they're all quoting it or they're all thinking about how funny it was and you're just sitting there hoping that nobody calls on you to quote the movie because you're just faking your way through it. Now, I'm not saying that we need to be in those kind of situations and have a prideful attitude of, oh, I wish I knew as much as this other person or I wish that I could display my knowledge to other people. The point I'm trying to make is, as Paul told, or as we see here in Timothy, that there is a certain shame that comes from not knowing what we're supposed to know. You know, this makes me think of uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. Or, excuse me. I apologize. I got ahead of myself there. There is a certain shame in not knowing what we should. Second thing that makes, or another thing that makes me think of a higher view of our studies is the wonders of godly discipline. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. It says, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That Greek word for sound mind is the Greek word sophronismos. It means discipline or self-control. And I find it so interesting that God gave us the spirit of discipline and of self-control. You know, it's just the thing in particular that I relate to with this, and it's become my shtick as of lately. It's become the thing that I tend to do and talk about quite a bit. But, you know, Matthew, he likes to tease me a lot about my cold plunges and my ice baths that I take. And, you know, the whole thing about them is that I like doing them because after I get out of the cold plunge or out of the ice bath, I feel really good. I feel really good about myself, and I feel really good physically. And, and Matthew's always said, well, the only reason you feel good is because you felt so bad while you're in the ice bath that after you're out of it, you're basically self-engineering a good feeling. And while there might be some, some merit to that, I want to draw on this idea of, of discipline and approaching the Word of God to receive discipline because it's the Spirit that God has given to us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11... It says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That word translated as discipline, uh, this is from the ESV, comes from the Greek word for tutelage or education. So discipline, it's never fun, but we feel good afterwards. We feel good after enacting discipline because we're acting out the spirit of discipline that God gave us and we reap the rewards of that discipline. And yes, any form of discipline is uncomfortable. And that's what discipline is. It's the force that keeps you in an uncomfortable place so that you can grow thereby. And it's uncomfortable to sit and study the Word of God. It's uncomfortable to look in the mirror and see where we're wrong and see where we need to improve. It's uncomfortable to do those things when we would rather be doing things that are much more comfortable for us, things that don't challenge us. But I can tell you right now, just a way to compare it. I know this is going to sound crazy, but I feel better after a cold plunge than after I do a a warm shower. I'll let everybody take a moment of disbelief at that, but it's, it's true. And the idea being is that we don't need to confuse feeling better while we're in comfort than the good feeling that we get after acting out discipline and receiving the reward from discipline. Now, I'm not trying to say that everybody needs to do cold plunges to be a better Christian. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm just trying to make a comparison of something that I've been doing to try and challenge myself and get better at being disciplined. Next, when it comes to a higher view of our studies, it's this idea of, of going on the adventure of your life when you study the Word of God. Now, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5 through 7 says, Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget, nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. You know, what I love about this passage is it paints a picture of a, of a beautiful story, of a beautiful journey that is going on, of seeking and finding something that's of great value. You might call it an adventure. You know, it's like every time that we come to the Word of God, we're a blank canvas, Or we're a piece of marble that God is fashioning into something beautiful. You know, and that's not always a fun process. Sometimes in those journeys that we read about, in those stories, the main character always has to be humbled before they complete the hero's journey. And it's true of us as well. But God looks at us and sees the need for change and to be fashioned by fire and trial, you might say. A beautiful example of this is in the book of Isaiah chapter 1. just to give you a little bit of context as to what's happening before this in Isaiah 1, God, in this scene, it's called the great arraignment. God is looking at Judah, looking at his people, and he is charging them with some pretty serious stuff. They have been unfaithful to him, and he is very upset, you might say. He doesn't like it, and it's been a very tough chapter up to this point. But after all of that, we pick up in verse 25, and, and look at what he says. He says, I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross." And take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice, and her penitence with righteousness. It's not a pretty thing to start with, but look at what happens afterwards. God always intends to bring us back better than where we once were before. And the chastening that happens through study of the word of God, just like the chastening that happened to Israel or to Judah here, is the chastening that has to come before the growth that we receive. You know, it's, it's one of many places where God pays us what C.S. Lewis calls the intolerable compliment. This comes from a writing of his in, the, in a book called The Problem of Pain. This is the way that he puts it. He says, we are, in very truth, a divine work of art something that God is making, and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until he has a certain character. Here again we come up against what I have called the intolerable compliment. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it is not exactly what he meant it to be. The artist may not care, because the work's just for a kid. You know, he's not going to worry about it. But over the great picture of his life, you might say the artist's magnum opus, is great work, the thing that means the most to him. The work which he loves, though in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God has designed us for a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. God works and reworks us through his word because we are no idle amusement to him. We are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. So as we study to conform to God's image, we have the adventure of a lifetime. We have a higher view of that study. Next is a higher view of our prayers. Now, I'm not standing here as an expert on the efficacy of prayer and all the inner workings of it, but I do know these things about prayer. I know that it works. I know that it's beneficial for me. I know that it's beneficial for the ones that I pray for and that it glorifies God. First thing that cultivates a higher view of our prayers is expressing gratitude and casting cares before God as a daily practice. 1 Thessalonians 5:16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And Philippians 4 and 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We bring gratitude to the forefront of our minds and we place the anxieties of life at the feet of the Father when we pray in this way. You know, i found the longer that I hold on to worries and the longer I withhold gratitude to God, the worse life tends to get. It's sort of a twofold poisoning of ourselves. But giving gratitude to God in everything, as 1 Thessalonians talks about, teaches and means that we are grateful for God's blessings no matter what the circumstances of life are. You know, this is pivotal to me because my tendency is to focus on everything wrong when things are bad, rather than focus on what's good. And I love the way that it's put here is to to pray without ceasing in everything give thanks in all circumstances, no matter what it is. You know, not looking at the good and not being grateful for the good and not praying to God and being grateful for what he has blessed us with when life is difficult is sort of the spiritual equivalent of jumping into a stormy ocean instead of staying in the raft. And everybody in the raft is looking out at you and saying, why did you jump into the ocean? It's nice here. And you're just shouting in the ocean, I I can't get over how bad the ocean is. And everybody in the the raft is like, what are you doing? It doesn't make any sense to do that. Another thing that cultivates higher view of our prayers is that we should pray for others to know and experience that which is good. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15, I, I love this prayer that Paul has for the Ephesian brethren here. He says, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. This is something I've probably dedicated the least amount of brain power to in in my time, but I need to get better at. And this is this type of prayer that we pray for for one another. Do all the saints need a spirit of wisdom and the knowledge of God? Do their eyes of their understanding need to be enlightened? Do they need to know the hope of God's calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, etc.? I want to pose a question. When was the last time that you prayed for someone to become a better Christian? Now, I don't simply mean someone who's struggling with a sin problem and you're praying for them to get better at that, but I'm talking about maybe someone who, by all intents, is doing good, if you'll allow me that phrase. Maybe somebody that we look at and say they're not really struggling outwardly with great sin problems and they're doing very well. And you can see by the fruits of their labor that everything is going pretty well and they're striving for their work in the Lord but do we pray for this kind of stuff for them? Do we pray for them to go from excellent to outstanding or from good to excellent, to have these kind of prayers for them? Now, this higher view idea of these things made me think of something else that isn't entirely unrelated to it, but in the same vein or the same category, and that is our identity in the things that we do as Christians, the things that reinforce our identity as Christians. First thing I want to talk about is exercising self-control in speech. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 11 it says, "A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back." You know, I used to think that the greatest challenge I would ever face is knowing what to say in any given situation. Well, actually, the greatest challenge is knowing when not to say what you want to say. Um, Wise saying I've always heard is, "A wise man once said nothing." Um, And there's another one about you know, opening up your mouth and removing all doubt that you're foolish. About a certain thing. All too often, our lack of self-control when it comes to our speech is the reason for the heartache and sin in our own lives and the heartache in other people's lives. Our prayer needs to be something like what we read in Psalms chapter one forty-one, verse three through four: "To set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth; keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing; to practice wicked works with men." Who work iniquity and do not let me eat of their delicacies? We may pray for God to keep us from temptation, but do we pray to have our speech bridled so evil doesn't ensue? It's a it's a weird example, but I actually traveled with a with a preacher once who, before every sermon, he said one of his prayers was that if he was about to say anything doctrinally incorrect, prideful, wrong, he just prayed that a bug would fly in his mouth and stop him. Now, I know that's kind of strange, but the idea being is is it a constant prayer on our mind that somehow, some way, that we don't say the things that we shouldn't say? Do we have that high view of our self-control in our speech? This is a really interesting factoid that I looked up. Did you know that the average person will speak about 860 million words in their lifetime? You might know some overachievers in that area. My life, by all intents and purposes, is about a little over a third of the way over, so I've probably got about 400 million words left to speak, 430 million words left to speak. You think of the power that words and the tongue has, as we read in James chapter 3. Imagine if somebody came to you and gave you $430 million, and you had the choice to invest that in people around you, whatever way that you chose. I would make this the case that the tongue and that the words we speak have much more impact than the money that we could ever give. 430 million words to invest in people, for good or for evil. Do we have that high view of our speech? Next thing is exercising self-control and impulses towards the flesh. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 3 through 4 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, this is the top tier of denying the flesh, of abstaining from sexual immorality. This is one of the most, you know, one of the most difficult things that we see in the world today to deal with. It's one of the most destructive sins that we see. And while self-control is is about more than just abstaining from sexual immorality, I like the way that this verse is framed because it talks in opposition to sexual immorality, to giving in to the impulses towards the flesh. It juxtaposes that with possessing our own vessels in sanctification and honor. And it paints a beautiful picture of what exercising self-control is like. It elevates the view of restraint in our eyes. Romans chapter 8 and verse 5 through 6, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You know, I've learned that the majority of self-control when it comes to the flesh isn't in the moment. Now, that may sound strange, but not in the moment when we're faced with the decision between the flesh and the spirit, between sin and righteousness, but in the moments preceding it and in the days preceding it. That's when the self-control really comes into play. It comes in the setting of the mind on the things of either the flesh or the spirit. The self-control really happens in the days and months preceding the moment that we might be faced with that sinful decision of whether or not we have the self-control to the study and the prayer so that when we're faced with that decision, we don't we don't make the decision towards the flesh. Next thing that's important for our Christian identity and that we need to have a higher view of is committing Scripture to heart and memory. And I want to make the distinction between those two things because you can commit uh, Scripture to memory and it not really be in your heart. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That phrase, dwell in you richly, means to inhabit in large quantity. It's a very interesting phrase. And while I don't think it's a fruitless endeavor to memorize scripture, I think we need to devote time to committing it into our hearts to the point that we can say it dwells in us richly. When the Holy Spirit penned these words, I don't think he just meant quantity when he said richly think he meant quality as well. And the key phrase being in all wisdom. So that means that there's application, not just repeating. And that takes meditation, which has been a big pet topic of mine recently. I can't seem to get out of a, out of a sermon without talking about the importance of meditation on God's word. But before that, I want to consider something about committing scripture to memory as a lifestyle. Oh, excuse me. Ah, I didn't put the verse up there. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9, if you want to read it in your pew Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. I love the picture that Deuteronomy 6 prints or shows us of what a life dedicated to the Word of God looks like. It's just in every single moment of these people's lives. From the moment that they wake up to the moment they go to sleep, they can't look anywhere in their home without it being there. They can't go anywhere without talking about it to someone, without speaking about it. And I by no means attained this mantle of being perfect at this, but we found a a system in our home that's worked pretty well for us recently, and I wanted to share that with you guys tonight. And that's the idea of a memory box. Uh, I had Braden make this for me. I heard about this idea somewhere on YouTube. And the idea is that you get whatever memory verse you want to memorize, you put it in this box, and you have a system of cataloging those verses so that every day, you're basically memorizing five verses a day. You're in the process of memorizing five verses a day and retaining it in your mind. So basically you have all these cards, and these cards are divided up into five different categories. You have your daily category, you have your odd and evens, and you have your weekly category, and then you have your days of the month. I can't count, that's four. So you start off in the daily category, and you write down a verse, and I would encourage you to write it. Because we can remember things easier by writing them you write it down on a three by five note card and you put it behind the daily tab and then in the morning you pull that back you open it up and you read it and as you read it you read it out loud then you think about it throughout the day then when you come home you do that one more time twice a day maybe three minutes four minutes total and then once you've memorized that you move that verse into the odd category or the even category it really doesn't matter then you put another verse into the daily category and then after you get the daily memorized, what you're basically doing is you're pushing those verses farther and farther back in that system until eventually you've filled up all the days of the month that you're going to be reviewing verses in 1 through 31 in the book. If that's clear as mud, talk to me afterwards, and I'd be happy to explain to you how we do it. But what I've found is that this is a great way to keep the Word of God in your mind on a daily basis. Is that, yes, it does focus on memorization, but what's beautiful about it is you're thinking about it in the morning, and before you go to bed, and then in between, you sort of force yourself to think about it and talk to other people about it, because you know you're working towards a goal. Another way I've found that helps with memorizing and committing scriptures to memory is writing the first letter of each word in the verse. I know that looks like gibberish up there, but basically it's the first letter of every word in Philippians 4 and 8. And the idea is that if you can at least see the first letter of a word, you can sort of Build up your brain's ability to recall words. Next thing I want to talk about, about having a higher view of, is building a home with the kingdom in mind. Matthew chapter 6, 31 through 33. It says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This brings us back to where we started in 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter 2, concerning this higher view of the kingdom and putting the kingdom first in everything that we do. I saw what it was like to grow up in a home with no view of the kingdom whatsoever. And then at a later time in life, it left me clamoring for it when I was presented with it. But if we have homes with an apathetic view towards the kingdom, then the things of the world are going to look a lot more attractive to us. So putting the kingdom first allows us to put the things of the world second and last even so. But what does a home with the kingdom in mind first looks like? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24-25 through 25 says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. You know, I wanted a comprehensive list of all the things that look like putting the kingdom first, but I believe the Holy Spirit can put it much more eloquently than I can. In reading this passage, I wanted to know how I should apply it to everyday conduct in the kingdom so that it's kingdom-first oriented and kingdom-best oriented. And this is the phrase that I came up with. I want to speak and act in such a way to my brothers, sisters, mothers, and fathers in the kingdom that blesses them to the best of my current ability and causes them, to be, causes them to be or desire to be the best possible Christian that they can be and glorifies God in the best possible way that I can. And the beauty of that mindset is it applies to the smallest actions that we do in the kingdom, mowing a lawn for a widow, bringing food to someone in need, saying a word of encouragement to those who are weak in spirit, or encouraging someone struggling with sin, every action we take has eternal implications, no matter how big, no matter how small, if we have a higher view of it. A higher view of these things is not a self-inflated view that lifts us up. It is a higher view that lifts up the work of God that he has called us to. And I want to bring it back to this idea of important people doing important things. I think we've established that God has given us an important work to do. He has looked upon us and given us a task that is very important. Do we consider the gravity of what we inherit in that task, the kingdom that we work in day to day, the work that we do unto others and unto ourselves? Congregational leadership and generational service is a matter of great importance. The eternal implications of serving one another and conforming to Christ's image, it's more important than a Fortune 500 company trying to train its next CEO or the election of important officials. When we're training young people to do the work in the kingdom, or when we're working amongst each other for the furtherance of the gospel, that's far more important than anything the world is desiring to do from a secular perspective. And we need to act it out like it's that important and take great great joy in that task. We need to have a higher view of all these things. If you're here tonight, and you wish to be baptized and wish to become a member of the church and wish to have your sins washed away, we'd like to make that need or make that uh, available to you tonight. Or if you need the prayers of the church for any reason, we'd ask that you come and sit on the front pew while we stand and sing.